0: For the 4.30 movie. The 4.30 movie podcast is available weekly wherever you listen to podcasts and on the free Electric Now app. Download it today. Best movies never made as featured in entertainment weekly is available wherever you listen to podcasts and on the free electric now app. If you think you felt a great disturbance in the force, you're not wrong. Ed gross and me, Mark A. Altman have a new oral history from St. Martin's press. It's secrets of the force, the complete uncensored, unauthorized oral history of the star Wars saga. So wherever you buy books, audio and video, pick it up today and you can learn the secrets of the force and don't miss our oral history of star trek in stores now and of course nobody does it better the complete oral history of james bond in digital hardcover paperback and audio that is all Hey, this is Mark A. Altman. And this is Darren Doctorman. And we are the Inglorious Trexperts. And this is the annual Inglorious Trexperts holiday special, part six. We're lapsing into the second year. Yeah, you might think <laughs> the holidays are over, but not here at the Trexperts. The holidays just go on and on and on. We're going to be celebrating Valentine's Day just around day the too. corner. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Christmas 2023 is any day now. <laughs> Oh, my gosh. I can't believe it. We, we planned this to be three episodes, and now we're on part six uh, of, of our seven-part series. No
1: end in sight.
0: No, not at all. <laughs> not at all. But uh, I'm thrilled that, once again, we are joined uh, uh, by the proprietor of the Burnett Network, Mr. Rob Burnett, from his observatory so, at an undisclosed
3: location somewhere in, around the globe. It is fine to be here with you fine fellows. I think we're going to have fine time with this episode. And Fine. it's the uh, showrunner
0: of uh, Netflix hit series, Dota Dragon's Blood, Mr. Ashley Edward Miller. And if I'm not mistaken, Ashley Edward Miller is wearing glasses. I am wearing glasses. The better to
2: see you with, Mark Hultman, the better hey. to see all. In fact, we've been doing this episode for so long. <laughs> I have lost my eyesight. I am nearly blind. I am okay. hoping that I still have some vestige of my eyesight by the time yeah, we're done from Dr. Recording. McCoy? <laughs> I got, uh, and they will be again. That's the beauty of it. Okay. Uh Come wow. on, aphrodisiacs. Actually, they
3: They're they make you look smarter. My God.
0: <laughs> well, let's see how smart you are because it's getting pretty serious now. We're, we're, we 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 um ended episode five with uh, our our pick for number twenty, which was the two thousand twenty one version of Dune, and uh, we're now continuing the countdown with number nineteen
3: as we celebrate with Rob Burnett. You know, I think in the annals of Hollywood history, when we look at the marketing departments and the marketing of movies, uh, at the top of that list has to be this next film. I, I would have to say, dare say, I don't think that I personally have been whipped up into such a lather as I was by the trailers, the promos for our next film. Now, people might say, Rob, you know, perhaps the patron saint of the Inglorious Trexports, you're you're trying to curry favor with them. I would say no. This movie, I I unashamedly would say.
0: Unabashedly. This,
3: unabashedly, unashamedly, unabashedly would say this is one of my very favorite. If not, if I call it a B movie, it doesn't really do it justice because it's not that, but it is certainly. And by the way, after a recent rewatch, 20. Five years later this is what I call a close encounter this is of course 1996's in the independence day independence day independence day my god police and the fire departments are asking it is
4: morning stay off the phone. you wake up
0: hey, hey, hey. Come on.
4: you greet your loved ones you grab the morning paper And although it seems like any ordinary day, it isn't. For one extraordinary reason. A historic and unprecedented event is occurring. The question of whether or not we are alone in the universe has been answered. This
1: is so cool. More ships have just arrived over India england and germany
4: i really don't think they flew 90 billion light years to come down here and start a fight we've got to stop them they're gonna kill us all they're using our own satellites against us the clock is ticking
1: with a full nuclear strike
4: over american soil
1: if we don't strike soon there may not be much of an america left to defend
4: being exterminated let's kick the tires and light the fire we're looking at worldwide destruction in the next 36 hours oh you can't hit nothing
3: That's what I call a close encounter. When these, when these trailers first started to come out, of course, this was directed by Roland Emmerich and it was written by Roland Emmerich and Mr. Dean Devlin. When the trailers for this movie started to come out, it was almost as like almost as if somebody decided to just creep into my imagination and make a movie just for me. Because they took... They took the, the, the star-studded uh, uh, disaster films of the 70s and they combined it with what was my childhood favorite film, War of the Worlds. And they made a movie about really big flying saucers coming to Earth and killing everyone. And I'm like, this is the kind of movie that was made just for me. I wanted to see it. Um, Roland Emmerich's Centropolis made this. They had their own... Visual effects company, sort of in-house doing the work. It wasn't farmed out, which is probably why they were able to do it for the amount of money they had done it on. They were following up Stargate with this. Uh, Independence Day, a star-studded cast. Will Smith and clearly a star-making role. Bill Pullman, who is arguably one of the great presidents. People always say that, get off my plane, Harrison Ford in Air Force One. Maybe he's one of the great presidents. I would say anybody who played the president in a movie in the 60s could have been better. But no, Bill Pullman, come on. President Whitmore, greatest president in cinematic history. This movie has Harvey Fierstein in it. Come on, man. There is nothing that you cannot love about this film. It does what the new uh, Apple Plus series, Invasion, took 10 hours to do, which is to even show us aliens. This movie starts from the get. It honors the moon landing, and then you see aliens just dishonor it and come to Earth. And it is this is so cool. This is... This is this is what every kid wants to see man. The, the, this movie opens if you look at the opening scene of this film when well the opening scene where Will Smith gets out of bed and he walks out front and gets his gets his morning uh, paper and opens it up and looks up and there's a 15 mile long gigantic well star, they they call it a city destroyer I guess. Um this film even has data in it. Brent Spiner is in it. Jeff Goldblum is working for a cable company and ends up saving the world. There is nothing in this movie that isn't awesome. I love everything about this film. It has awesome aliens. It has awesome visual effects. It has fighter pilots. It has Randy Quaid. What's not to love? This movie has aged. If you watch this movie now, 25 years later, you think to yourself, where did movies like this go? This movie is monumentally entertaining. It is so much fun. And, you know, it's got a love story. It's got Vivica Fox, who I was able to direct in an episode of TV that Mark Altman produced. Thank God, because she is a stripper and she's a hero, along with the dog. What is not to love about this damn film? Uh, you know, I can't. Uh, it, it's first of all, this to me is what studio uh, studio filmmaking used to be this was original it was not based on any other kind of an ip it harks back to uh the great traditions of b science fiction films from the 50s combined with the star-studded Irwin allen towering inferno casts of the uh, disaster films of the 70s and it combines them into a very heady mix everything about this film the score for this movie is amazing david arnold's score david arnold who later went on to score Bond films after this. Everything about this movie, it feels it, it feels like it is designed to deliver a jolt of awesome right into the center of your being. And I, I defy anyone to go back and watch this movie right now and not love it. It's not only a great two-and-a-half-hour blockbuster, but
0: it's also an amazing commercial for Apple Power Books. <laughs> it really is. Uh,
2: I have to say, Rob, um, I'm a little confused about one thing. Now, this is supposed to be the, the top 101 science fiction movies, which means that we're supposed to show a little bit of enthusiasm uh, <laughs> when we describe these films. And your ambivalence, I find a little upsetting. Um, personally, I will tell you that uh, this was the first movie that uh, I went to see as a newlywed during my honeymoon. And the, the greatest endorsement I can give this film is that it is the second
3: most exciting thing that happened on my honeymoon. It's, I mean, you know, roll credits. The only <laughs> mistake this movie makes is that Harry Connick does not sing a song in the middle of the act. You're goddamn right. That would have been I, I mean, Harry Connick later went on to be in something like Copycat. Maybe that was before this. I don't remember. A- either way, there should have been a, a Harry Connick love theme, kind of like in When Harry Met Sally. At some point in the film, and Harry Connick met Sally. You know, Harry Connick met Sally. I mean, this I, is when Harry
1: Connick met Sally Ride.
3: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there. Th- this film, the 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 effect sequences in this. I remember meeting. I think. I think Mark it might have been at one of our booths at um at the San Diego Comic Con where I met Joe Viscosal. Yeah, he was, was
0: at the bar, Rob. <laughs>
3: well, <laughs> no, he came to bar. one of our uh, he might be maybe uh, yes. Joe Viscoso, one of the great pyrotechnicians of Hollywood he who blew up, blew up the, up the White House. He blew up the White House in this movie. And it was very funny because I got to talk to his wife. Uh, I said, I said, you know what? I can tell you exactly what your husband's greatest explosion was. It was the fourth TIE Fighter in Star Wars with that Speaking secondary explosion. Modes. But uh, this was a close second. Blowing up the White House was a close <laughs> second. My God. What is not to love about this movie, folks? Darren, tell me, doesn't this movie have one of the great speeches of all time in it?
1: Not only does it, but it let does. me do it for you. Oh, yay. Come on. Good morning. morning. In less than an hour, aircraft from here will join others from around the world. And you will be launching the largest aerial battle in the history of mankind. Mankind. That word should have new meaning for all of us today. We can't be consumed by our petty differences anymore. We will be united in our common interests. Perhaps it's fate that today is the 4th of July and you will once again be fighting for our freedom, not from tyranny, oppression, or persecution, but from annihilation. We are fighting for our right to live, to exist, And should we win the day, the 4th of July will no longer be known as an American holiday, but as the day the world declared in one voice, we will not go quietly into the night. We will not vanish without a fight. We're going to live on. We're going to survive. Today, we celebrate our independence day.
0: That's great. And then there's that great scene where all the feuding countries of the world team up to fight the aliens. You have Israel and, yeah. you know, Saudi Arabia and everybody like all giving each other a thumbs up, jumping yeah. into their yeah. fires. It's so, it's so much fun. And, you know, it, it's really a love letter to the sci-fi movies that we grew up on. And, and that's because Dean and, and Roland were huge fans of these movies. Yeah. You can't fake it. It's the same reason that Kevin Feige makes great Marvel movies because he loves these comics, he loves yes. these characters,
3: just like Dean and and Roland love these movies that they're paying homage to. I also have to give a shout out, you know, movies with large ensemble casts like this live and die by by the character actors that you put in them. Yeah, and I gotta give I gotta give a shout out to a couple of character actors, James Rebhorn, who's not with us anymore. Yeah, and of course Bill Smitrovich. Well, I love, I love Bill Smith, he plays Lieutenant Colonel Watson, the commanding officer of the black Knights, And, uh, and, uh, you know, it's, and I, if I remember um, James Rebhorn plays Albert Nimzicki, he's yeah, the secretary yeah, yeah, of Defense, named after the uh, named after like an executive that they didn't like at MGM. No. <laughs> at MGM no. I mean, and this is, this is just, uh, it, you, you know, everything about this movie from, the camera work, to the visual effects, to the music, to, again, the greatest marketing campaign in the history of movies, in my opinion. <laughs> There's nothing about this movie that doesn't taste good going down. Well, of course, I love <laughs> Bill Smitrovich
0: from uh, our uh, f- favorite TV series, Crime Story, oh, which yeah. he was awesome in. Yeah. And then, you know, Rebhorn is in that rarefied group of character actors like J.T. Walsh and yes. uh, Stephen Toblowski and you know, all these character actors that we, we love from the 80s and 90s. And it was really a shame. You know, he could do anything red
3: porn and he's yeah, great in the movie. He's got a great face. And, and I love, I love the part they put him in. It's just this, there's nothing about this movie that I don't love.
1: I, I mentioned this before, but I'm in this movie. Well, my voice is. I'm one of the first uh, reporters on the TV describing the clouds showing up over Russia. That's
0: me.
3: Is that really? Is really? Yeah,
0: yeah. Yeah. So, love- Rob,
3: you're in Superman Returns <laughs> d- I am as Superman
0: a reporter. Returns, my voice Darren's is in right. uh, Independence Day as a reporter. It's true. And Ashley and I, uh, we stay, stay behind the scenes, right? Yeah, right we're in right. nothing. We're in nothing at all. <laughs> we,
3: nothing. we got nothing. We got nothing. No, Mark, that's not true. You and I are in the specials. Yes, hazmat. In the hazmat we nothing. <laughs>
0: we're in nothing.
3: <laughs> <laughs> we're in a movie that was written by James Gunn. Come on now. So, that brings us.
0: To number 18, and that thing you do, Ashley <laughs> Edward Miller. You know, before I begin describing
2: uh, our our next entry, there's just something that uh, I, I have to say to all three of you. Um, listen, I know you gentlemen have been through a lot, but when you find the time, I would rather not spend the rest of this winter tied to this fucking couch and by that i mean Too late. the film yeah exactly <laughs> that dares to ask the question maybe we're at war with norway
0: <laughs>
2: i'm referring of course to john carpenter's um amazing uh 1982 remake
1: of the thing the thing
5: Station 31. Can you read me? We found something in the ice. We need some help down here. Can anybody hear me? We found something. We found something.
4: We found something. And it has no more enemies, nobody left to kill it, and then it's won.
5: You guys gonna listen to Gary? We can beat one of those things!
2: The Ting, the thing you do. Uh, Look, The Thing is a sausage party, but it's got a great cast. Um, and what Carpenter does so well in telling this little tale of a shape-shifting alien that uh, invades a, uh, an Arctic um, a research station uh, and begins taking people over uh, and assuming their forms and doing all sorts of horrible things with dogs Uh, in the dead of winter, in the darkness, uh, is he really makes this incredible use of the lack of space, the claustrophobia, the lack of color, the fact that everybody is like in these big ass parkas. Um, He makes you feel the environment. Um, He makes you really like all these guys. He gives them all a chance to demonstrate their own personality, which is really, I think, super important in a movie where at any time, any one of them could be the thing. I love how smart this movie is about dealing with identifying who the thing is and who the thing is not. Uh, I love it for the testicular fortitude that it demonstrates uh, in presenting to us the ending that it presents where we're not given an easy answer as to who survives uh, Keith, David, the great Keith, David, uh, or Kurt Russell, the great Kurt Russell. Um, it, you know, and oh, by the way, Wilfred Brimley is in this thing, right? It's you like, look, him, my... casting Wilford Brimley is Younger always the right thing to us. do. And it's a tasty way to do it. Um <laughs> Uh, look, it's just, it's cool. It's got a terrific score by Ennio Morricone, Um, which John is- John Carpenter. And John Carpenter, right. Uh, it's like, it's just, the dialogue is great. Like, and it makes, here's like, when you do a remake, I think a trap that a lot of directors, writers fall into is that they kind of just try to do, either do what was done before, or they do something that has nothing to do with it. And you ask yourself, well, why are you doing the remake in the first place if you didn't understand what was great? And what really works incredibly well about this particular remake, which which happened in the amazing year of, uh, th- in fact, the greatest geek year ever, 1982, um, is that it understands what works about the material and yet makes it its own. I will conclude my introduction with a little story about the time I met Keith David uh, at, a, uh, at a party. It was a premiere party for Agent Cody Banks. It was the greatest experience of my life, not Cody Banks meeting Keith David, and um, I was at that party. Well, were you there when he told his story about making the thing? So yes. he was he was telling us that uh, he was sitting there with the rest of the cast and they were between takes and they were all talking about the script and all the techno babble and how they didn't get it and all the sci-fi crap and all this other stuff, blah, 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 blah. And you can't say this shit, blah, 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 blah. And all this stuff. He says, but what we didn't know was that the mic was hot. And John Carpenter was sitting back there, listening to all of it. And all of a sudden he comes out, right? And all of a sudden Keith David is Carpenter and I am somehow Keith David, even though Keith David is a million feet taller than I am. And he's poking me in the chest. The way Carpenter, I guess, poked him in the chest, I can't even imagine it. Because John Carpenter comes out mad as a motherfucker.
3: I wrote that script. I wrote the word of that script. You guys are going to say that script. You love that script. You're going to do the whole fucking scene. Blah, 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 blah,
2: blah, blah. And then he turned around and he went back. And we all just kind of sat in silence. And I thought, that is the greatest filmmaking story I've ever heard. I, I, I was jealous of John Carpenter coming out and poking him in the chest and screaming about how he wrote that effing script. Um, so John Carpenter, one of my heroes, uh,
0: this is for you. Well you know 1982 may have been the greatest geek year ever but the weekend the thing opened might have been the greatest geek weekend ever because of course the thing opened the same day as Blade Runner and Megaforce so you get the yin and the yang of being a genre <laughs> fan you get the the the, the best with, and then you get Ace Hunter so yeah it, it really it really captures what it's like to be a Genre fan. And of course, the thing, what's wonderful about the thing is this is another one of these genre remakes where we love the original for everything that it is. And we love the remake because it doesn't attempt to do tell right. the same story. In fact, it's much a much more faithful adaptation of Who Goes There, the Joseph Campbell story. But um, it's terrific. And uh, it's the gift that keeps on giving because, of course, the famous nail-biting scene of the blood test mm-hmm. has been knocked off by every sci-fi and <laughs> horror movie and TV show ever since, including our beloved Deep Space Nine. Which did it really well, by the way, which did it very well to figure out who was the changeling. But uh, uh, in I think it was the adversary. Yeah. Um, and uh, it was exactly the same thing as the thing. So if you haven't seen the thing, it's a brilliant scene. If you haven't seen the scene, the thing, it's a great homage. Well,
3: I, what I love about this film, I mean, we have to talk about Rob Bottin's amazing physical effects that still endure even to this day, but you know, there's something to be said about knowing how to do a basically a one location film. And Yeah, they do go to a different base, but but this is a film that is very much set in in rooms. You know, there are no sweeping CG shots of some well, futuristic that, there's city.
1: A, there's a couple.
3: Well, yeah, I mean, there's an Albert Whitlock, Matt painting of finding it. But but the, most of the film takes place in rooms and, and the, the, the tension is brought up. It, it, it's all character interplay. And, and again, another brilliant, um, brilliant casting. The film has an incredible group of actors, very diverse actors, different age groups. And, and it really is, is a movie that lives and dies on direction, which is in a way sparse. I mean, Carpenter is sure. very, beautiful compositions, but very straightforward, very classically done. And even when you watch it today, it, it has lost none of its power. You know, maybe aside from some of the technology, it's timeless. And it really is a film that stands the test of time. And I don't think it's, if anything, it's only grown in stature. I mean, in 82, this film was not well liked. Same with Blade Runner. And it was a, and it was a disaster at the
0: box office. It killed John Carpenter's Firestarter at Universal. And, uh, you know, Carpenter was upset about its failure, you know, for years uh, afterwards. And, of course, there's a famous story that Adrian Barbeau tells uh, when he, she was married to him. Uh, they were coming back from a trip to Hawaii and saw uh, uh, the success of E.T. on the cover of Rolling Stone at, when they got back right before the thing opened. And Carpenter knew the writing was on the wall already because, of course, E.T. came out two weeks before the thing. And he knew that was going to destroy the thing. And in fact, it did. I mean, this is not a movie that should have been released
3: in the middle of summer. This was a, no. a fall movie, for sure. It should have been uh, even the winter, the dead of winter. Right. I it's, would love to have seen this movie in Winnipeg, Mark, for the first time in a freezing cold theater. Right. Just it, turn the
2: AC way down in your home theater and enjoy this hyper-violent Agatha Christie novel.
3: No, it's, it's, it still has lost none of its power, and uh, it's a wonderful movie.
2: And apparently Mark, Mark is, is frozen. He was actually frozen.
3: He's he been was, taking over.
2: He's watching
1: it in 4D right now. Well, while Mark is sorting that out, um, it might be time to uh, bring in a little of the uh, ultraviolence, perhaps.
3: Yes. Well, I have to say that the first time I saw this movie, I want to say I I had just joined the Video Age, and I was probably 14 years old. I I uh, I had a I had a VCR, and I was one of the first people in our neighborhood to have a VCR. And um, this film was the very first movie I ever saw that I had. I watched back to back twice. I watched it two separate times. Right. I mean, right away, I, I, I finished the film. And this was a film that had existed in science fiction film magazines like Fantastique* and books like Alan Frank's sci-fi. Now, I only seen pictures of it, but I didn't have any idea of what it was. And and this film, I was I was my young mind was blown by this movie I, I, it was of course Stanley Kubrick's 1971 dystopian. uh, What would you call it? Sci-fi social commentary. It's kind of a fable. It is kind of a fable, A Clockwork Orange. There was me, that is Alex, and my three droogs, that
4: is Pete, Georgie, and Dim. And we sat in the Kurova Milk Bar, trying to make up our Razu dogs what to do with the evening.
5: The Kurova Milk Bar sold Milk Plus, which is what we were drinking.
0: This would sharpen you up and make you ready for a bit of the old ultraviolence.
5: the evening's the great time isn't it alex (laughs) boy he's enterprising aggressive young bold vicious he'll do who else could that be now it was lovely music that came to my aid a bit of the old ludwig van it'll be your own torture i hope to god it'll torture you to madness Ah! stop it stop it please i beg you food all right great sir great
3: try the wine
4: Gorgeousness and gorgiosity
3: made flesh. Um, and, and it's interesting because it stars Malcolm McDowell, who Kubrick had seen in Lindsay Anderson's If. And uh, If is a great film if you haven't seen it. And based on Anthony Burgess's uh, future shock dystopian novel. And it basically tells the story of we're in a dystopian England. Some people have said it's a communist England because of how it's depicted. And it is, it is about a group of thugs, Alex and his three droogs. And half the language in the movie, it's, from, it's called NADSAT in the book. It's a, it's a heady, frothy mix of Russian and English mixed together. And in the book, if you read the book, it comes with a glossary in the back because it's a difficult read because you have to figure out what, 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 what are these words? A glossary? Like Dune,
1: 1984.
3: Uh, yes, yes, absolutely.
1: A glossary and helps your feet not get wet from all the words. It's, That's a
3: galoshery. <laughs> it's true. But it, it, it's about a, a horrible group of thugs that they take drugs every night at the Corova Milk Bar. And by the way, it's one of the first early mentions of adrenochrome. And for all of you uh, QAnon people, you know what adrenochrome is, but they drink it in this movie. Uh, but it's called... Uh, uh, Drenchrome. But they got the word from adrenochrome. Yep. And And... Um, I uh, drank from Synthemesk and, and uh, 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 Velocet. Velocet, which is what we were drinking. Uh, they, they, so these four criminals, they spend their nights doing home invasions, rape, brutal beatings, uh, doing horrible things to people. And eventually, their leader, Alex, He's finally apprehended after you see the life that he leads. He's apprehended and he's turned into he goes to prison, but he volunteers to be part of a new program that the, the government that is in charge of the future Britain is trying to impose where they're going to actually reprogram the minds of criminals through the Ludovico technique, which uses drugs and movies to shape your behavior. To So whenever you have even impure thoughts or thoughts that are considered to be bad, you have an adverse reaction. Uh, you get sick, sick to your stomach, sick to the very, very essence of your existence. That kind of is sick. And um, Alex becomes a pawn. And then he is deemed cured after going through this technique. And he ends up finding all the people that he victimized in his life in a strange twist of fate. But then you realize, and the central question of this movie, and the reason that I found it so compelling even at at my young young age is the idea of of doing good, if that could be programmed into people, is it right if it destroys free will? What is the most important thing about being a human being? Even if you choose to do bad, that is better than having your very spirit, your very life essence programmed by the state to compel you to do good. That free will, that choice is what's most important in in any human life. And that's a rush. That's a pretty odd. You choose not to decide. You still have made a choice. uh, It's it's a pretty heady film. And yes, I used to show it to all my friends in junior high school and everybody would watch the first half an hour and they'd be bored by the rest of it. And I'm like, no, 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 you have to stay. Come on, you have to watch. Well, now we're getting to the meat of the story. But I think this movie does what great science fiction does, which is pose an interesting moral and ethical question. And it forces the viewer like we like this guy. You actually end up liking a horrible monster of a human being. He's one of the great antiheroes of all time. Also, Malcolm McDowell is incredibly charismatic Mm -hmm. as an actor. Incredible in this. And it does ask a very important question at the end of the day that, you know, I think it's more timely than ever. You know, and um,
1: And never before has someone enjoyed so much a forkful of peas.
3: (laughs) It is true. And you know, this film, uh, Wendy Carlos, uh, uh, her score uh, now now uh, Walter Carlos, but Wendy Carlos no, scored then, this film. Then, then Walter. Walter Wendy now. Well, that's right. That's correct. Walter Carlos, now Wendy. Let's just say Wendy. Uh, scored this film. Wendy Carlos had done an album called Switched on Bach, an electronic uh, look at the music of Johann Sebastian Bach, and Kubrick uh, tapped her to uh, create an electronic score for this film that is startling. And it, it, it leans heavily on Beethoven's Ninth. It's, it's an incredible, well, I think one of the great soundtracks of all time. It's one of my favorite soundtracks. And she also went on then to score Tron later after this. And an amazing, amazing bit of work. Absolutely. Well, now it's time to get very, very quiet.
0: Very silence, please. Silencio for Darren Doctorman and number 16.
1: Well... You know, even silent movies were loud in their time. And uh, this one was uh, quite loud indeed, because it was the 1927 Fritz Lang's Metropolis. produced by UFA, the uh, uh, famous uh, German film company, um, and uh, it it posits a, a future that uh, has been ripped off so many times that uh, I can't really say, um, but this is uh, the logical evolution of our society, where, you know, we talked about it in, uh, in the time machine before, and uh, this represents that. The the haves and the have-nots. The schism between them is uh, bigger than ever. Uh, the what they call the uh, the ruling class uh, is uh, you know living a, a life of pure enjoyment, and uh, and the working class is toiling in the uh, in the basements and uh, furnaces of the society. And Metropolis is a a huge city. Uh, Maybe it's uh, maybe it's a city as big as a planet. we don't know. It's something like that though. And uh, what happens is the the son of one of the uh, one of the rulers of this uh, city um, discovers that there are some things going on in the underworld that uh, are not good, and he becomes uh, sort of a freedom fighter for uh, the working class, the, uh, the, uh, uh, underprivileged and, uh, the, those who toil in the machines. And a little twist in it is that a crazed mad doctor has created a woman from, uh, a, a mechanical being called Maria. And she, uh, basically is leading the revolt against the rulers. And it's uh, it's a fascinating look at this uh, creation of this world. The design is unbelievable and has, uh, I don't think, ever been matched. As I said, it's been copied often. Uh, the, uh, the first version of uh, Maria is probably one of the most famous robots ever to have been seen. Uh, you'll recognize her as the grandmother of C-3PO. Uh, she's very, uh, very in that sort of art deco, uh, design that, uh, they use so, uh, effectively in Star Wars later. Um, but, uh, the, the depiction of the city is immense and fascinating and cars everywhere, planes flying everywhere. It's, uh, it's, unbelievable technology certainly for 1927 um but uh, these images some of which have not been matched even in modern films
0: yeah i mean fritz lang is a phenomenal director i mean his work in sound films was superb uh his work in sound films was amazing uh but this is really uh you know you can't even have the caveat for the time it just is spectacular and you know it's more relevant than ever it's it's sort of a piercing look at Social inequities. It's kind of like the the silent version of Squid Game, and <laughs> it's a real treat. Uh, a I think silent Squid Game <laughs> wow. for, uh, for for you. And of course, you know there there were attempts, and it was re released later with colorized segments and a Giorgio Giorgio Moroder score. You know, which are all very gimmicky. But the best thing to do is this wonderful Kino Lorber uh, Blu ray with the mm-hmm. uh, classical in
1: 2010. A, a complete uh, restoration well as much as they could they found uh 20 minutes that were missing for years uh down in south america and they in uh, you know on a uh, a horrible 16 millimeter print
2: because the 20 um, minutes were on the run hiding yes. from the law correct gotcha
1: they integrated them into the film and uh very interesting scenes very it, it uh, sort of opens up the story a little bit and adds some uh different characters but uh also, if you can find the documentary on uh, the uh, on the restoration of Metropolis, it also tells some interesting stories of how it was made and why it was made. And more fascinating is the fans of it later. Uh, the uh, the Third Reich had uh, a copy of it in their uh, in their vaults, and uh, it was uh, very strange. The uh, uh, much to uh, Fritz Lang's dismay, Adolf Hitler and Joseph Goebbels were fans of the film, and Goebbels met with Lang and told him that he could be made an honorary Aryan despite his Jewish back, back, background. Goebbels told him, uh, Mr. Lang, we decide who is Jewish and who is not. And uh, in this blurb, it says Lang left for Paris that very night. Yep, that's
0: Jeez. right.
2: That's right. Uh, I look, I kind of love this movie weirdly my first experience with it was when i was 11 years old i saw the Giorgio Moroder restoration with the with the rock score um on like vhs right i rented it like randomly i thought it looked cool uh and it is cool and it made like and again it's like look i'm 11 years old i don't know shit right uh i still don't but I had an interesting experience with it. Like it's, it's stuck with me. It made quite an impression on me because I'll tell you what happened like between like watching that with that, like with the score, like watching that rest. I kind of went, Oh, film. Like it was my first silent film film doesn't need a lot of jabber jabber to work. Right. You can tell story purely through visual that you don't have to say everything. Um, you know, which I think is a is a lesson that maybe uh, we could relearn in modern cinema that, that maybe like, you know, there is value in leaning on image and sound uh, to You're saying that tell maybe a story. writers
1: do too much.
2: Uh, yeah, but I think that they're encouraged to do too much. I think that like writers get trained. Oh, there's a lot more writing that. than dialogue. Yeah, exactly. But it's like, it's, but it's, it, it's that, that one little sector of it that I think has sort of, it's almost like it's lost um, its ability to kind of access the storytelling power of pure exactly. images, Just think of the, the discipline that it takes to make a movie like Metropolis and well, make Well, that's it the word.
1: The word is storytelling. Yes. It's not playwriting. It's different.
2: That's right. Or radio.
3: Or radio. Yeah. Also, one of the things I love about this movie is is the questions it asks about technology and society and, and how it all works together. And, you know, it really does have those great stories about a dystopian future, the dehumanization of human beings, how we're going to integrate into the technology. And this film was made in the it came out, what, in twenty seven? Mm-hmm. We're almost one hundred years out yeah. And the questions this movie asks are as relevant today as they were when the movie first came out. Absolutely. Fantastic well, film. You, you,
0: you might know Rob Burnett as an avuncular, sort of happy-go-lucky kind of guy, but at number 15, he's about to get furioso. Uh,
3: this movie has characters named Rictus Erectus, the bullet farmer, the people eater, Cheeto the fragile, I mean, the characters, <laughs> the keeper of the seeds. And of course, it's about one Max Rocketansky, who not all of really. us know as. <laughs> come on now. Even two Max Rocketansky. Are you, are you going to, you know, you really? Sorry. Come on. Mr. Rocketansky. Max <laughs> who Watch his wife Call Call run down. Your You're not going to be a lawyer. Uh, this is the third sequel to a late 70s low budget indie. Uh, incredible film from Australia, Mad Max, Australia, uh, Australia. Uh, one of the great, one of the great B action films, of the late seventies. And it, it, a man who, 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 who trained as a doctor, a doctor decided to make movies. And that was the great George Miller. And he changed action, sci-fi dystopian filmmaking forever. He also changed.
1: Well, he created movies, movies he about
3: animated penguins, uh, uh, for the better, but uh, yeah, he, he, well, I don't know. I mean, we'd had, we'd had movies like damnation alley or no blade of grass, you know, but, but, but yeah, there was something that, that he, George Miller created sort of a genre unto himself. And I would dare say that Mad Max and the sequel Mad Max Tour, as we know at the road Warrior, might be the two most imitated films. I mean, the Terminator and Mad Max are two of the most copied movies And road warrior in history we got how many how many low budget italian rip offs did we get of this film too many but this is 2015's mad max fury road the third mad max sequel in this wasteland
4: i am the one who runs from both the living and the dead a man reduced to a single instinct survive it is by my hand
5: you will rise from the ashes of this world Where is she taking them? I want them back! They're my property!
4: Oh, what a day! What a lovely day!
5: Want to get through this?
2: Let's go!
4: As the world fell, each of us in our own way was broken. It was hard to know who was more crazy. Me. Or everyone else.
3: It stars of course tom tom hardy stepping in for the great mel gibson playing the role of max Rockatansky. and here here is i mean this film to me is the pinnacle of action filmmaking yes and the world building in this film the 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 detail everything about this movie from the crazy language of morton joe's people speak to the crazy doof warrior who has a fire spitting guitar like whenever they go out on uh, some kind of operation apparently they have to bring somebody with a giant rack of speakers that plays heavy metal music to get oh, people in the mood. I mean this film there the, the imagination on display in this movie is incredible. The world building is incredible, but uh it's also one of the movies that spent the longest time in development. Um they came up George Miller came up with the idea two years after Mad Max beyond Thunderdome came out in 85 and it didn't get, didn't get any traction until years later. They were going to actually shoot this movie uh, in at first where they shot the road warrior, but then there was a monsoon season and things were growing in the desert and they couldn't get it made. And then nine 11 happened. I mean, South Africa happened. Yeah. George Miller, South Africa, they ended up shooting this movie in Namibia, and it is, it is one of the greatest mixes of physical effects and, and, and real action scenes shot on location with visual effects. Yeah. Not since- Amazing star-
1: visual
0: effects.
3: Not mm-hmm. since Starship Troopers uh, did we see a heady combination of live action and, and VFX as we do in, in Mad Max Fury Road. This is one of the greatest action movies ever made. The car chases in this are, are, are absolutely incredible. The actors are incredible. The world building is incredible. And it's, I think it's one of the great examples of both action cinema and science fiction cinema ever made. And I remember I saw this movie for my birthday at the Chinese theater and I was so excited for it. And this was truly a movie that exceeded all of my expectations. And I I honestly couldn't believe it existed when I saw it. But it is, it is an amazing an amazing example of what cinema is capable of even today.
0: I love everything about this movie, other than the fact that Lindsey Buckingham does not sing the main title song, Fury Road. I think <laughs> that would have been great. Fury Road. <laughs> but other than that, it, it, it's fantastic. And I got to tell you, I'm not as big a fan of the Road Warrior trilogy as you guys. I respect it. I admire it. I don't love it. But I love Fury Road.
2: It's incredible, also- dude. I also love Fury Road. This is the first movie that I saw in focus in like 15 years because I realized that I needed glasses (laughs) (laughs) and I like went and got them. And the day that I got them, we went to see Mad Max Fury Road. And I remember like, really, my eyes were open. My God, this is what movies look like when you can see this is crazy. I loved it. Um, It has, like, one of my favorite action scenes of all time, mainly because, like, there is zero action in it, but it's awesome. It's, you know, Max goes off to take care of a bunch of a-holes, and we sit back, and we're waiting on Max. About a minute later, there's an explosion! And then Max comes back, and he's covered in other people's blood and, like, dust, and it's, it's fantastic. It is so smart on every level, um, and it's just, and it's fun, and it's cool. My only knock on it is that there is not enough V8
0: Interceptor. I do you say not enough Lindsey Buckingham.
1: There's not enough Mad
0: Max. <laughs> that's true. That's the I, don't you just, I don't know. I don't care. If he's more Mad Max Charlie's and more Staron V8 Interceptor, is, is amazing. I know. I don't need but Mad that's Max. that's
1: the thing. I know. We don't need Mad Max.
0: We don't, we don't need, need another our
1: hero? hero? Charlie Theron, <laughs> <Darren. laughs> Charlie Theron is freaking amazing in this, and she lights up the screen. And she's a badass.
0: And oh my god, she's she's great. Absolutely, I think this is a movie we all agree. Number fifteen. It's amazing to see George Miller. What a what an interesting filmmaker. Besides the road war movies, doing things like Babe, about the pig, and and Happy Feet. What boy? I mean, this guy could just do it. He can do anything. But boy, he delivered. This is a passion project for him. And he really nailed it. I wish we could have seen his um, Justice League movie. God, that would have been great. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, number 14, at the end of the universe, lies the beginning of Ashley. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Look,
2: there is almost nothing clever to be said about number 14, that someone on this podcast, in some context, either in this one or our sister show, the Four Thirty Movie, uh, has not already said, other than to say that I think that um, that some of the uh, my my greatest experiences involving this this movie have, have happened in the context of this podcast, um, and I will also say that um, I did not watch this movie when I first experienced the story. Instead, I read the novelization first. Mm. Uh, I finished by it.
1: Vonda McIntyre?
2: Uh, was it Vonda McIntyre? That feels right. It it and was. I finished the, the novelization the day that we were going to go see the movie. And I was so shocked by the end of the book that I ran into my older brother's room and I shouted, Bill, you won't believe it. Sp- Bach is dead, and oh, the beating I suffered was fabulous and so well deserved.
1: Rightly so. (laughs) Yeah, I was gonna say, yes it was. I was
2: but a boy, I had no idea how important. Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan.
4: Beyond the
2: darkness, beyond
4: the human evolution, is Khan. A genetically superior tyrant. Exiled to a barren planet. Banished by a starship commander he is destined to destroy. Left for dead, he has survived.
5: I'll chase him round the moons of Nibia, and round the Antares Maelstrom, and round Tradition's flames
4: before I give him up. There she is. There she is.
5: Fire! Shield's collapsing, Captain. Can you give major power? A few shots, son. Not enough against their shields.
4: The base is stubborn. I need warp speed in three minutes or we're all dead.
5: I've done far worse than kill you. I've hurt you. And I wish to go on hurting you. I shall leave you as you left me. Marooned for all eternity. Buried alive. Buried alive.
4: Sean! Sean! At the end of the universe, lies the beginning of vengeance star trek 2 the wrath
2: of khan who's khan who's khan is it it's it's khan who is khan (laughs) i mean uh, what is uh, there are those who believe that the wrath of khan down here began out there now I i mean i i know many or several writers in Hollywood um, who I count among my friends and not even people who were like on this podcast who consider this to be like one of the most structurally impressive, well-designed, kind of well-constructed stories, screenplays of all time. Um, Simply because it is just just, it is a masterclass in how to establish characters, how to establish an antagonist, kind of put them at odds, give them like wants and needs and emotional investment and story that matter, throw them against each other, have them become uh, like true rivals uh, that that truly challenge one another and make one another rise to the occasion, Um, creating a sense of stakes, uh, creating a sense that our heroes could lose, um, and not just lose the fight, but lose the things that matter to them, um, all while re-examining their own lives and the choices they've made. Um, Star Trek II is just, it's fantastic. And obviously we've talked a lot on this podcast about um, you know, the, the writing of this script and what a journey uh, it went through and how Nick Meyer pulled so many different elements together. And my hat is off to him for what he accomplished. And then what he achieved with almost no money in making this film. Um, The incredible sleight of hand that he pulls at the very beginning with the Kobayashi Maru test that lulls us into a false sense of security that makes us believe that in these days before the internet, when everything was spoiled, before everything could be spoiled, that perhaps, oh, the stories of someone important dying are really just about this. Um, And then making that death land making it feel like something. And by the way, making it feel that way without, I think, ever really having needed to watch an episode of Star Trek at all. And I think as further testament to Nick Meyer, I don't know that, uh, that something like that could have been pulled off um, by someone who was not uh, steeped in the lore in the way that Nicholas Meyer was not steeped in the lore when he began this project um, and it, it really feels like a writer director uh, exploring a story, exploring characters, attempting to understand them on his own terms um, and show us something epic and beautiful and cool. And unlike anything that we have seen before, um, I, I can't really think of any, of any more superlatives uh, for this film other than Look, I, I love it. It's uh, it's a film that that shaped me. I think you know shaped all of us in our own way, um, and I'm I'm sure you guys kind of dig it too.
1: To be fair, Nicholas Meyer may not have been steeped in the lore of Star Trek, but he had been steeped in the lore of all the things that were that inspired Star Trek. Yes, um, he he was uh, you know a devotee of uh, the Hornblower novels. Um, he knew good storytelling when he heard it and when he did it. Um, he was not one of these people who, uh, who looked down at uh, the genre and uh, thought it was beneath him. He realized the antecedents that had come before it, I mean, that's redundant, but uh, he realized that these things uh, had just as much uh, power uh, as the older stories. And so that this new mythology um, was just as valid as the stories that he had grown up with. So I I think he made some great decisions of how to treat the characters and uh, treat the story so that uh, it had enough of the sort of mythic quality to it and uh, still be true to uh, what we wanted these
0: characters to be. Yeah, I think the most amazing thing about Nick's accomplishment is that they were paralyzed with fear after Star Trek The Motion Picture of yeah. what to do next and how to do it and how to do it for a price. And when they could not you know, crack Star Trek II, after all the scripts they developed yeah. and, and, and all the problems they had coming up with something, the fact that Nick was able to distill all these d- divergent drafts, these disparate drafts, and create what he did in 11 days yeah, to within save the picture of, within from being of canceled. The,
1: of the project being, yeah, shut down. Is
0: is, is, is remarkable. So when people say Nick Meyer saved Star Trek, he literally saved Star Trek. Because if they hadn't, if Star Trek 2 hadn't gone into production when it did, I think that would have been it. Yeah. You know, and um, it's, it's really a remarkable achievement. And uh, I think only now, now at the end, has he come to really accept. Uh, you know, the, the, the praise and, uh, that's been lavished on him because, you know, as we all know, Nick is a very erudite and, you know, he, I don't think he wanted Star Trek on his tombstone, but he's really coming to accept the fact that this is touched and meant so much to so many people. And it's kind of nice to see that happen where he accepts, you know, how powerful this movie, you know, was and how much it touched people. And, um, It really is a terrific movie in so many respects.
3: I also have to say, too, that what was really interesting about Nicholas Myers, you know, he flat out said he wasn't a Star Trek fan. He wasn't particularly enamored of of the genre, even though he'd made time after time before this. He did the work, you know, Roddenberry had told him or he'd heard that it was Horatio Hornblower, that a lot of this was was drawn from classical literature. A lot of this tale is Melville inspired, you know, Moby Dick. And, and some of the great Star Trek is, and some of the great science fiction is, is literary based. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you need to have a strong understanding of classic literature and the mechanics of storytelling that have been brought forth for centuries through our great, you know, go back to even Gilgamesh or <laughs> the stories of the Greek and Roman myths, all of those things. Nicholas Meyer is a classicist. And he had that background. He comes from a family of, of musicians and and uh, he 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 really like Darren said, he understood the underpinnings of what Star Trek was, which is classical literature. And he was able to bring that forth in an incredible action adventure context. And yet the entire film is one reference and another to the great works of classic literature of, of, of the Western canon. And he made
0: it look effortless. And, you know, it's interesting because like all great movies, it gets better with age. This is a movie when I first saw it, I thought it was a really good episode of the TV series. But I didn't feel it was a great movie. And over time, I've really come to appreciate it as a a motion picture. And I think I like it more now than I ever have. Um, Because, you know, obviously, it was limited by its budget. And, um, you know, he was extremely smart in the way dealt with that. Like you said, Darren, the redress of the Reliant being the enterprise bridge and um, uh the way that, you know, Bob Salen engaged, uh, you know, ILM and everything was so meticulously storyboarded. Uh So what they managed to come up with for the, you know, the money that they had, because even then, you know, as a kid, I would look at it and you see regular one and you could tell it was straight on modern props, but, you know, now that becomes less, of an issue because the story is just so compelling and Shatner's journey. You know, I think we haven't even acknowledged the fact the, uh, you know, the fact that Bill Shatner was willing to play a character who was growing older, who had lost his job, who had basically um, uh, had an illegitimate son who needed glasses uh, because he was losing his vision, who basically doesn't listen to, his subordinates and gets his ship toast, toasted, ultimately leading to, to, to Spock being killed. He makes every mistake imaginable. He, yeah. I mean, if he, he, if he just raised the shields and the Reliant hadn't destroyed the Enterprise, you know, that whole story would have been very different. Kirk makes one mistake after the other, but it's uh, amazing because at the end, he just comes across as the consummate hero. I mean, the whole Kobayashi Maru, um, the, 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 the thing that he pulls, uh, you know, coded on an open channel. I mean, just time after time, we see what experience, an experienced Star Trek captain could do. goes back to the Deadly Years, whether it's the prefix code, whether, you know, it's what he pulls uh, when they get beamed back to the Enterprise. I mean, he's one step ahead of the man with the superior intellect. And, you know, you have to give credit to Hart Bennett for very early on Seizing on the idea that Khan should be the antagonist, you know, these people respected what had come before and they understood how to pay homage to it. Um, and not just use it as something as, as uh, uh
1: throw it out just, to the fans as chuff to the, for the yeah, fans. it wasn't fa- not, not just use it as uh, fertilizer for their mm-hmm. own crop.
3: Also, you got to give it up, like you just did, Mark. Shatner's never been better. I mean, a- anyone who talks about Shatner is acting. I, you and I have always thought we know that Shatner is a great actor and he is fantastic in this film. I mean, if you ever had any question if William Shatner is a leading man or not, you know, like you just eloquently pointed out, as, going into his middle age. I mean, he is he is absolutely fearless in this. John world. Wayne
0: wouldn't play that role.
3: No. And 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 William Shatner's portrayal of Kirk in this From from I mean, from the opening, first of all, one of the most I thought his motion picture entrance is the most badass thing. But come on. Backlit Mm -hmm. the simulator opens (sighs) and he steps on with the book in his arms. You know, I mean, it's not a drama critic Uh, and it's just I I mean, my God, you know, as a little kid, I wanted to be William Shatner. When I saw Star Trek to the Rathacon, I wanted to grow up and still be William Shatner. Now I'm a little older than he was when he made the Rathacon, and I still hope to one day be as cool as he was in that From movie. For what
2: it's worth, the people that you should think about right now who are older than Captain Kirk was in this movie include Tom Cruise <laughs> in the Mission Impossible movies. A spring Chicken compared to Captain Kirk in Star Trek II. And Shatner had the cajones to do a movie about getting old and what it means. And um But the and funny thing is he didn't it. take that to heart. Right. He didn't, but he didn't. but like it's just the little things like the glasses and like look, just it, yeah, just that, right? Just little gestures of yeah. putting on the glasses. Yeah. You know, it, and acknowledging his his
0: own fallibility. You go right on quoting Starfleet regulations. And I think that's why we're we say the things we do about Star Trek three. Because you come out of this movie with this powerful statement, I feel young, right? Yeah. And and, and he's sort of rediscovered himself. And you feel like maybe he's going to try and reconnect with Carol Marcus. He's going to be a father to his son. Um, the, 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 the whole world is ahead of him. The, the death of Spock and the birth of Genesis has given Captain Kirk new life. Yeah. But then what does Star Trek 3 become? Fan service. Bring That's back right. Spock. Um, let's uh, you know Save it for Nick- the commentary. fair enough. But I mean I, I think that's part of the reason why we have such a negative reaction to Star Trek 3.
1: I think you may be right.
0: I think you're right. Okay. okay. Which brings us to number 13 13. And they're back. They're back, baby. Once again, another remake of a classic sci-fi movie done even better the second time around, It's another man who had a very close association with Star Trek director, writer Philip Kaufman's invasion of the body statures.
4: They come from a dying world. They drift through the universe, pushed on by the solar winds. They adapt, and they survive. The function of all life is survival. Sleep, sleep, sleep. From deep space, sleep, sleep. The seed is planted. Sleep, sleep. Terror grows. Matthew! Matthew! Wait, the others? Elizabeth,
0: wake up! Get you when you sleep! Sit
4: up! Invasion of the Body Snatchers. It's got no detail, no character. It's unformed.
5: All of a sudden, they're growing like parasites. Is it contagious? People are being duplicated. How do you know my name? I didn't tell you my name. I can't find anything in here that looks like a body.
4: My side's nosebleed.
5: It looked right at me. You're looking
4: at it as if it was human. It was not human. Now, the classic fear begins to grow.
5: (laughs) We're being cornered.
4: In a modern masterpiece of science fiction. They're
5: barricading the street.
4: Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Get down! Starring Donald Sutherland, Brooke Adams, Leonard Nimoy, invasion of the body snatchers from deep space the seed is planted terror grows
0: and uh, this is just a great paranoia paranoia conspiracy thriller and you know, if if, if the fifties invasion uh, of Snatcher was about the pervasive influence of communism, then um, this was about the um, the me generation, and, uh, and and it's just it's so, a new age new ageism, and uh, it's just a fantastically executed film with an incredible cast: Donald Sutherland, Brooke Adams, Jeff Goldblum, and a very unemotional Leonard Nimoy uh, <laughs> it, 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 it's it's so well directed it has one of my favorite scenes in any sci-fi movie where they're hiding from the pod people and uh the you know Donald Sullivan picks up the phone and uh and and they call him by name and he's like how do you know my name I didn't give you my name and it's just it's so powerful um it, it's and Veronica Cartwright also is, is terrific in this movie. Jeff Goldblum is terrific in the movie. It, it, it's a great cast. Um, it, it, it's a true 70s. It goes so well along with the Parallax View. You could program a whole film festival of all these, uh, you know, Parallax View and all the President's Men and all these films. It has an ending that's so audacious in the fact that. It has no resolution. It's so cynical and dark. It definitely is this post-Watergate, you know, kind of 70s ending that you would, you know, 10 years later in the 80s, you would never see an ending like this. But the great it,
1: thing, the, the, the thing I love about it is that by the time the film starts, it's already over. It's already <laughs> happened.
3: No, no, I agree. There's no hope for them. I agree with you that this is a movie about, this is not an, an, alien, an alien invasion movie where the protagonists don't realize the invasion has happened already. I mean, I think like Jaron just said, and it's it, what's really scary is that we the viewers know more than the protagonists mm-hmm. do. And and we're like, we're like, and that's what makes it. This movie is terrifying. Absolutely. You know, it, it, it just came out on Blu-ray. I mean, uh, pardon me, in 4K. It was released a couple weeks ago in 4K. The new version that Kino Lorber put out, this film is so beautifully photographed mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. you look at it now and it's just uh, it, it, there's so many weird like why does Robert Duvall show up as a priest swinging <laughs> on a swing set <laughs> yeah. in this movie I mean th- no explanation yes. it, it's and the, that not my wife I mean not this my wife this movie is just and the sound design uh Walter Murch worked uh, the sound design this what's film. that San
0: Francisco mafia oh my Ka- Kaufman and Coppola and all those people uh
3: up north you know, I always say that the, the great trilogy of of sci-fi remakes is uh, a Body Snatchers, The Thing, and Cronenberg's The Fly. Mm-hmm. And, oh, dude, this film, I just watched it. I just watched the new disc. And it's, it's, oh, I love this movie so much. It's so good. And
0: get the new 4K, like Rob was saying. It just came out. And it was so great to see them put them out because this is not a movie that necessarily, as it's at the top of a lot of people's lists, surprisingly. It's gotten a little bit of, a little forgotten. And, um... It's phenomenal. I don't, but... I don't
1: like watching it. I'm so scared by it. It's creepy. Yeah. It's yeah. really, really. It's creepy. really
3: creepy.
2: My first experience with it was the Mad Magazine parody. <laughs> it's not I the way know. to see this movie. It's definitely Hate not hearing. the way to see it. But it was really good. It's like, and for, and in ever since, since I was a child, I I can't hear anybody mention Capers
3: without thinking about <laughs> Rat turds. <church. laughs> it's a Rat <laughs> Yeah, it's a Rat Turd. <laughs> hey, hey, man, I I I've got the a photo novel of it right over here. I bet you do. You know. Know. What's the tagline, Rob? Uh, uh, the seed is planted. Terror uh, grows. <laughs> Rob's I motto. mean, by the way, one of the great movie trailers of all time, too. Yeah. Totally. Oh, my so, God. Absolutely.
0: Absolutely. It's a great movie. And it, if you haven't seen it, absolutely seek this one out. It is a gem. And uh, speaking of gems, number 12, Rob Burnett is about to take the red pill. Tell uh, us you know, what's next.
3: I have to say that I don't think I mean, obviously, I wouldn't brag about that. The the science fiction (laughs) genre is I I think all the great science fiction shows where we're going. It's a precursor to our future. I don't think that there's ever been a science fiction film that has been more politically influential than this movie. Just what you said, Mark. Though no, we're, we're still, this movie's now 22 years old, we're still talking about being red pilled, or some people are talking about being red pilled. Uh, I I have to say, The Matrix, the Wachowski siblings, The Matrix, is I think the last time I was ever in a movie theater, and I was truly blown away. Uh, it is a heady mix of everything from Japanese manga to martial arts movies to uh, modern philosophy. Uh, it is it is an incredible film that that basically asks you, the viewer, what is real? I mean, now you can go and watch any number of YouTube videos. Well, are we living in a giant simulation? Maybe we are. Would we know? How would we know? What do we know? what's real or not. And I have to say, I went and saw this movie on the Warner brothers lot. I went and saw it at the Steve Ross theater for the first time, because I would see anything at the Steve Ross theater. It was a new theater. And, um, but this movie, everyone was making fun of it when it was coming out. It was kind of one of these movies, you know, we couldn't, the, the internet didn't allow us to watch trailers. There was no YouTube yet. So to download a trailer took a, a day and a half. So no one AOL did dial up. Yeah. So, so everyone's like, well, tch. Robert Longo's Johnny Mnemonic, you know, based mm. on a William Gibson story, cyberpunk. Nobody wa- No one wanted to see this film. I've never been in a, in a line of people that were more not excited to see the movie they were going to see. But people had hope. It looked interesting. The Wachowskis had written Assassins and they had made Bound, which was yeah. a, a great movie, yeah. you know, but they hadn't done anything else. And so everyone in the theater, I'll never forget this, the, the, the mood, the of, of the people in line to see this movie was very, let's call it ambivalent. <laughs> That's all I can say. No one like, knew yeah. anything. Yeah, no one knew yeah. anything about this movie. No one knew. And that and I was wonderful. Say, it was. I, 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 we go into this theater, and the Steve Ross theater, it's where I saw Dune recently. I saw The Postman there for the first time with Kevin Costner, and I loved the Postman. Nothing to brag about. I know, but I'm sitting in this film, and I have to say I'm watching it. I, I it's th- First of all, this movie is wildly entertaining. It is beautifully directed and conceived but i have to tell you the moment when neo does take the red pill and wakes up and 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 you realize that all of humanity is batteries for this machine world i truly it was one of the great for me cinematic moments of my life Mm -hmm. when i was completely floored I I thought I'd seen everything. I thought I'd read so many books. Nothing could surprise my jaded, black-hearted self. And I sat in that theater, and I felt a moment of elation of, of, I'm like, this is the power of transformative storytelling. I didn't say it aloud. I almost, I I would have, I almost want to scream out, no way, or whoa.
0: And it was,
3: (laughs) it was, uh, I mean, it was a moment of, It's why I love movies. And it was the last time, 22 years ago, that I can remember being completely floored by the concepts in this film because it was a frothy mix of sci-fi, action-adventure awesomeness, and also some really interesting philosophy that the Wachowskis had woven into the storyline. They required their cast to read philosophy books. Uh, sim- simulacrum and simulation, whatever. I I don't know the mm-hmm. actual title of the book, but uh, was that the book? Mm-hmm. Um, they they made the it. cast read it, you know, and, and apparently like gave a test out and said what. So did you understand this book, you know? And they 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 had the grips are like, eh. Yen <laughs> Wu Ping. I mean, they, they brought in some of the great martial arts masters from Hong Kong cinema to oh, I knew kung fu. I mean, th- everything about this movie from the design to the effects to the transcendent bullet time, you know, that was actually fairly simple, but no one had ever done it before. I mean, still cameras coordinated with a computer. I mean, amazing stuff. What what John Dykstra did with the Dykstra Flex camera and motion control in the 70s for Star Wars. They did this new thing that was then ripped off on every TV commercial ever. But it, it, this is a film that to me, this is the last groundbreaking studio movie that I saw ever in the last 22 years. There's been nothing that has come close to what the Matrix did. And it resonates this day. And I don't care what anyone says. By the time you watch this, I will have already seen it. But right now, as of this recording, I'm seeing the first IMAX show of this movie on the 22nd. When it airs, when it opens, I cannot wait to see Matrix Resurrections. And thank God, Lana Wachowski, that you decided to make it because I cannot wait. Here's how meta my Matrix experience gets. So as much like yours,
2: Rob, I had no idea what the hell I was walking into. I was simply going to see a movie. I was going to see a movie with a, with a coworker of mine, who's very good friend. Um, and ironically, the reason why we had time to go see a movie in the middle of the effing day was that we had these very large computer simulations that we were running. And we needed to let them run for hours. And there was nothing else we could do except right. wait for them to run. So we put everything in, set up the data, made sure everything was okay. We let it go. Boom. So we're off running our computer simulation we go to see that movie. And it was not a full showing at all. It was the middle of the day. And I remember when we got to that scene, right? Exactly what you were talking about when your mind just, when your skull just sort of blew apart. And I turned to my friend and I said, am I crazy? Or is this effing amazing? Because we went in thinking, this is going to be garbage. It's Keanu yep. Reeves. It's Johnny. He it was like, this is a thing amazing. Uh, so it was pretty great. And I actually, just a few days ago, uh, I went to see it. Like, it was in an IMAX presentation. Obviously, it wasn't shot for IMAX. But it was an IMAX presentation, um, a re-release. I took, uh, I took Caden, my 12-year-old. Had he seen it before? Time. He had not seen it before. Um, and he loved it. Because it's a great goddamn movie. I'll tell you, though, that here's what changed for me about the experience of seeing it in 2021 versus 1999. And it's not going to be what you think. Which is, in 1999, like, I sort of looked at Cypher, right? Joey Pants's character. And I thought, oh, you traitor. Like, it's like, what's wrong with you? Why would you want to? But in 2021, I was like, you know what? I kind of his point. It. He has a point, right? It's like, yeah, it's the steak is juicy and delicious. And you've been spending nine years sitting in that tin can eating freaking, you know, tasty wheat uh, and taking orders from Lawrence Fishburne. And that's cool. But like, is it better? I mean, even though I go, yes, of course it is. Um, of course, as it turns out, then they're the sequel. So it's not better. Um And of course, I disagree with his choices involving unplugging his friends, but I 100% get why he thought, you know what? The Matrix was better. Like what his motivation was, was perfectly expressed. It was completely sympathetic. And I hadn't had that thought when I first saw that movie.
0: I don't know what that means. (laughs) You know, I was on that line with you, Rob. And it's funny when you tell this story because you're exactly right. That's exactly what the attitude was. People thought because uh, it, it, that, that was a time of the bad cyberpunk movies. It was like Abel Ferrara's New Rose Hotel and Johnny Demonic. And everybody thought, oh my god, it's Johnny Demonic too with Keanu. You yeah. know, and and there were you know even though we had Love Bound, that was a one million dollar indie movie. We thought, okay, but this is like Joel Silver's giving them the kings the, the keys. That was a crazy
3: thing, dude. Joel
0: Silver, man. And it was like this is it's going to be. You know, look at the stuff Joel Silver was doing at the time. It was going to be some big, stupid movie, right? Yep. And I I remember it was exactly that. You sat in the theater, and as it went on, I mean, I think it's even earlier. I think that that great scene with Carrie Ann Moss and the agents Mm -hmm. coming in. Well, that's the opening scene. And and the race to the telephone. And you're like, wait a second. This is not crap. This is... Am I not mistaken? I think this movie's pretty good. And then it just kept going. It's like, this movie's really good. Mm -hmm. Wow. And then, you know, we all came out of the theater and we're like, that movie was great. (laughs) (laughs) How did that happen? And it was like, and and I was like, and I remember, and I remember because we were like, we were like proselytizing for it because we saw it a couple of weeks before it opened and we're telling everybody, you've got to go see the Matrix. It's amazing. And you're like, what? Yeah, nobody. That? <laughs> <I'm sorry. laughs> and uh, but yeah, it's it's a really great movie. And I think, um, uh, you know, I, I, I like you. I hope that Resurrections is good because um, anything that can redeem these movies after the sequels would be appreciated.
3: Yeah. You know, I also think, too, that that the film has actually lost none of its power. I mm-hmm. recently um, the four K's of uh, the Warner Brothers four K's of the movies. They went back and they they because the Matrix was actually finished on film and they did a new transfer of all three films. And the Matrix still it looks incredible. The well, new Bill form, Pope's cinematography is fantastic. It's just mm-hmm. fantastic. And you look at the films and like sure, there are moments that you know, of course, that they're of their time, but it's so Mr. Anderson. It's so beautifully done. Again, the acting. Oh my God, all the characters, even Keanu Reeves, everybody is great in yeah. this movie. It is impeccably cast and it's so iconic. When you go back and you watch this, you realize, wow, half of our modern age was shaped by this movie. <laughs> it's Huge in various influence. ways. Huge influence. I mean, you know, it's funny. I, I was playing with my uh, my first, I found my first Motorola Razor phone today and I was playing with it. I'm like, this is so the matrix.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I just did a book about oral history of John Wick and Kung Fu. And I mean, obviously the ground zero to a certain extent is um, uh, the matrix, because of course that's where Keanu met, um, uh, you know, the director of Chad Chad and and David. um, So who ended up doing the first, uh, first John Wick and then Chad went on to do the rest of them. So, um, you know, and it was such, uh, um, a, a combination of all our passions in the 90s, you know, it was like pure cinema, but also Hong Kong movies, which yeah. had been a huge part of the 90s, you know, uh, John Wu and Ringo Lam and all that stuff, you know, we were always going to see, you know, whether it was on Laserdisc or at the New Art, So, and then, you know, and sci-fi, It was so it was like, and it also oh, had yeah. something to say, you know, as opposed to a lot of movies which were sort of empty, you know, the fact that even it was, even if it was Dime Star philosophy,
3: it still was philosophical underpinnings that were really interesting but they were they were actually citing legitimate you know philosophers like you just pointed out i mean for anybody who loved action cinema in the 90s john Wu was a huge i mean a monstrous influence so starting with a better tomorrow and the killer and and then moving on to bullet in the head and then of course hard-boiled i remember seeing i don't know if you were there i saw hard-boiled with john wu at the new art that was the first yep. time i saw yeah i did yeah uh, yeah that was that was an amazing night And you know, watching the movie with the 45 minute long assault on the hospital. the uh the hospital and you, uh, you you go back and you watch it now it's i i the only thing the only thing wrong with those movies to me is the sound design i would add different different gunshot sounds but other than that i i, I mean the and ring a lamp city on fire which yeah. tarantino right. had, had used to for reservoir dogs I mean it was such it was such a it was such a and manga. I mean there was so much manga. It 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 was such a a cross cultural you know, people talk about inclusion now. Inclusion is a big, a big buzzword today, but the Wachowskis, they they I wouldn't say culturally appropriated, what they did was they honored you know, they honored all of this stuff that came from Asian sci-fi and philosophy from Eastern philosophy, Western philosophy. They put all this stuff together in something new. And to me, that's what's so exciting. You know, watching filmmakers and artists take from the world, take from all of the world. Yeah. It's not cultural appropriation. It's 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 no, an it's honor. A smoothie. It's, an it's a- taking <laughs> all
0: the ingredients you
3: like and putting them in a food processor and blending them together. They taste really good. And and the thing is, they honored all of those people and they freely admitted it. They're like, here's what we took from everyone. And 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 they created something new. And that's human history. And The Matrix is a historical moment in sci-fi and action and certainly in cinema in general.
0: What's great is people then seek those films out. So somebody who wasn't aware of Hong Kong cinema or, or wasn't aware of some of the books that they were, if if they love the book, they started to seek that out. So yeah. it's not cultural appropriation, it's honoring something you love. And as a result, hopefully it's convincing people to go back to what your influences are and explore them. And I, I think that it honors what you're you're taking from rather than you know you're stealing something.
3: No, absolutely. But that's all of a oh, great art history. You know, <laughs> great artists steal. That's what That's they right. do, you know. And and uh, uh, I I do think, but the Matrix is singularly unique. And of course, I mean everything from Equilibrium to the Underworld series. I mean, my God, the 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 influence that the Matrix had on genre cinema in the last so many years. black trench coats, dude. Mm. Let's hope they all stay on the screen. Yeah, but yep. amazing stuff. Amazing, yeah,
0: absolutely. Stuff. Which brings us to. 11 and oh murder it's darren <laughs>
1: um you're talking about the uh the honoring the history of science fiction and uh one of those uh seven pillars of uh, history of science fiction oh, movies oh. is 1956's forbidden planet <laughs>
5: Imagine yourself as one of the crew of this faster-than-light spaceship of the future, sharing their curiosity to know the unknown, their tension, their readiness for inconceivable adventures. Commander, if you sat down on this planet, I warn you that I cannot be answerable for the safety of your ship or your crew. When you reach the forbidden planet, you explore all the wonders of a vanished civilization. You travel deep down into the heart of the Forbidden Planet to discover the incredible marvels of this lost genius race. These magnificent scenes in striking Eastman color stagger the imagination. 20 miles. Look down, gentlemen, are you afraid? 7,800 levels. Yet the wonders of the planet Altair IV conceal a strange and evil force, unknown, irresistible.
1: uh spaceship c 57 wow. d they're they're uh we don't know how long their voyage is but they're oh, out yes. there they've been out there for a long time uh five year mission all maybe. guys no women and no uh, you know men uh men get pretty lonely in space and when you uh when you encounter a young lady on a faraway planet who uh doesn't really know all that much about dealing with men. It's a fascinating encounter for everybody. Uh, Unfortunately, there's her dad, uh, who is uh, basically a mad scientist who has discovered ancient knowledge and ancient uh, uh, constructs by a long dead race on uh, this faraway planet of Altair IV. Uh, They were marooned there years ago supposedly. Uh, And uh, these two are the only survivors of the Bellerophon.
0: Thank God the time warp's been broken. You should see what our new ships can do. Our new ships can
1: what? (laughs) The argument goes that this is basically the first episode of Star Trek before Star Trek existed. You know, uh, 10 years before Star Trek was born, this was its predecessor. And it is uh, structurally exactly like a Star Trek episode. It is uh, visually exactly like a, Starship, a Star Trek episode. It's so fascinating to see the elements in this that are uh, later used by Star Trek and other, uh, other science fiction properties. But this is a truly a literary adaptation of Shakespeare's The Tempest uh, set in the space age. And who, boy, it's the space age. Uh, they are the this the design of the uh, of the movie is the quintessential sort of uh, googie uh, sci-fi uh, uh, design. It's just borderline on uh, on German uh, expressionism. It's uh, it's just sort of going into the jet age a little bit and it's a fascinating mix. It's a fa- fascinating uh, incubation of this sort of style, and I, I love it. It's, uh, it's, a, it's a fun story to watch. The characters are great. They're, they are uh, well-defined amongst each other. Uh, you're not confused as to who you're seeing talking. You know exactly who is, who is, uh, who is talking on screen, and you know about them, and it's very, very well told, and um, you know, this was, this was a big old Hollywood's attempt at uh, entering the space age, seriously. There had been movies before that were, you know, sort of schlock, uh, cheapo sci-fi things that they would just, uh, you know, throw out there for the kiddies. But this had something more. This had a, a very adult story with it and very important, meaningful uh, occurrences. And it's just, it's fascinating to see how, when sci-fi is treated seriously, like literature, it works so well. And uh, it's, it's uh, so great to see Leslie Nielsen before he turned into a clown.
3: Well, okay. I, I would also say that one of the great things about this movie is it, it is a loose interpretation of Shakespeare's oh, The Tempest. totally, of course. You know, and, and I, I do think, again, uh, this film being the prototype of Star Trek, it has a really heady sci-fi yet... I mean... It's
1: a, a, a big co- sci-fi con- idea.
3: But yeah, the conceit that that expanding your mind, but expanding your mind too quickly, a, an entire civilization was given this brilliant gift. <laughs> it was like going back to Jeff Goldblum. You, you spent all this time... Uh what was the what is the what does he sure say? Is...
1: Figuring out if you if you could do it, you didn't think if you should.
3: Right. And here's a civilization that was destroyed by that. Yeah. And it, it really is. I mean, you've got Walter Pigeon. Uh is it Walter Pigeon? Mm-hmm. Walter Pigeon, yeah. Walter Pigeon as as a uh, Morbius. Uh it, it, he is the classic, he doesn't mean to be a bad guy, <laughs> you know, and he becomes a villain. And and it's so through his own hubris. His own hubris and Anne and Francis, it look, not not only is she sexy, but she's one of the most adorable femme fatales in yeah. all of science fiction. Well, she's not characters. a femme fatale, she's more it's of an ingenue. a bathing suit. Yeah, she's an ingenue, but I mean, you know, she does <laughs> she does cause quite the stir amongst the crew. <laughs> Men are gonna come to blows because of her. She, so I mean, I always wondered when I look at Alta, I'm like, come on. You know what you're doing. (laughs) She's like, I don't know. Does this dress look nice? I don't know. I mean, she read enough. She knows what she's doing. (laughs) And of
1: course, it has one of the greatest uh, um, uh, non-human characters ever created, uh, Robbie the Robot. Um, Um, it's It's a complete realization of a robot that you absolutely believe is real.
3: And he can produce booze
1: yeah like me, that was your draw guy. to him i understand
3: i mean my right. god you could ask him to make any kind of liquor and he would just Anyone he's Kentucky a walking Burbank. dance party that guy yeah any he, he's got flashing lights incredible will 50 gallons be sufficient <laughs> and also i mean the idea of monsters from the id right that that the worst sounds the, like my children the worst, <laughs> the worst things that exist are are in our own minds. Yeah, that humanity is the architect the of its own of our demise. Minds that
1: we can't control.
3: I mean, and Disney animators—the fact that they use Disney animators to create this crazy, weird, mm-hmm. one of the most bizarre-looking creatures of all of science fiction—and it's also creepy. It's a, a creepy, so, so creepy. Yeah, yeah. And and yeah. you know, for sci-fi fans
0: uh, you know, of, of, of sci-fi, there are a couple of really great uh, uh, people that would become more well-known over time. Warren Stevens, who, of course, people know from uh, later on from Star Trek by any other name, oh, and yeah. Richard Anderson, um, yeah. who uh, would be the Bionic Man's best friend, Oscar Goldman. So, uh, you know, and then Leslie Nielsen, as you said, who was uh, Jeff Hunter before Jeff Hunter, and then ends up becoming... Uh,
1: he ends know, up wielding one. the naked gun.
0: He ends up wielding the naked gun, indeed, indeed. <laughs> But uh, we're gonna have to have um, Ro- Robbie uh, synthesize some ale for us because this marks the end of our um, episode of the Inglorious Treksports Holiday Special, which means that next week it's our finale, it's our big ten-part finale where we <laughs> count down the top ten, the the the, the highly coveted top ten Inglorious Treksports greatest sci-fi movies of all time will your favorites be on the list you'll have Probably to tune not, in to so find out yeah or, or that and uh we'd love to hear what you think what 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 have we what have we gotten right what do, what do you think we've gotten wrong you can uh reach us of course on uh, facebook or uh, on twitter at inglorious trek or instagram at inglorious experts as we count down to our holiday finale next week on the treksperts and I want to thank Bill Ritter, who uh, has uh, been uh, <laughs> doing these now for the last, away at these for six the last weeks, uh, and uh, um, doing an amazing job. I just listened to the first episode, hours. and it's phenomenal. And uh, of course, we want to thank Peter Olmstrom, who did a lot of the research, our associate producer, Natalie Biscali, Zach Raggett, and you, our audience, for sticking with us through all the insanity. And of course, uh, Darren and I would like to thank Ashley and Rob for once again joining us for this very special. Holiday episode of Inglourious birds We can't wait to see you back here next week for the grand finale. So uh, on behalf of all of us, keep on trekking ingloriously, of course.